The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. The sun is the solution to so many of our energy challenges, and it's now possible to harvest solar power and deliver it where and when it is needed. We all know that, but did you know that SunGrow develops the most cutting-edge technology to do that for residential, commercial, and large-scale energy generation? If you want to find out more about SunGrow's inverters for those sectors and for energy storage, go to sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets. It designs and manufactures the 1,500-volt Mark I energy storage system, which offers best-in-class safety features, market-leading energy density, and low installation and operations costs. And you can find out about those modules, which are now on the market, at CorePower.com, K-O-R-E, CorePower.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome to the show. We are just days out from the election, and, well, how could we talk about anything else this week? Climate is finally beginning to play the kind of role in campaigns that we've waited so long for, and in this pre-election episode, we'll recap where things stand. How are energy and climate playing into late-stage messaging of Biden and Trump? Plus, what are some of the crucial down-ballot races we're watching on election night? Last five years have passed since the largest terrestrial natural gas disaster in U.S. history. A methane well in the Los Angeles hills broke open and shot a plume into the air for four months. That nightmare belongs to the nation's largest retail natural gas utility, Southern California Gas. What's changed since then, and how did it accelerate distributed resources in the state? Jigger Shaw is with us from Bethesda, Maryland. He's the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. How are you doing? Hey, Stephen. It's go time. What does go time feel like for you? So yesterday, I was on three Zoom calls. And so it's just like so much get out the vote effort, right? I mean, just getting people to vote is like, I think, just so much work. And I'm glad that a lot of people have signed up to do it. Catherine Hamilton is also here. She's co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She's in Arlington, Virginia. Catherine, what does this moment feel like for you right now? Yeah, so I voted uh, a couple of weeks ago. Everybody else in my family has voted. My extended family has voted. So I feel good personally. It's been surreal because, as I've mentioned before, my husband and I have been dividing time up to stay at the hospital. Uh, This morning, I'm just back from a really wonderful night at the hospital (laughs) to record. Um, But I haven't been able to, we haven't been able to engage in the last 30 days as much as we've wanted to and as much as we had planned to um, just because of that. But otherwise, uh, yeah, biting my fingernails like everybody else. I've been spending a lot of money. Yes. (laughs) In the closing minutes of the last presidential debate, the conversation turned to climate change and actually turned into quite a substantive moment by the standards of American politics. In a final exchange, Joe Biden said he would transition the oil and gas industry, meaning he would stop giving them subsidies and instead fund cleaner sources of energy. It ended up being a critical moment. The Trump campaign cut ads around Biden's comments and Biden doubled down, saying afterward he was serious about stripping subsidies from fossil fuels. And it capped off a presidential campaign where 
However limited relative to the importance of the issue, climate change did play a bigger role than any other election. So let's recap where things stand, the messaging, the money, the policy implications. First, Catherine, what did you make of Biden's transition comments in the last debate? Yeah, so I thought they were very aligned with everything he's been talking about, with his plan for the transition, his $2 trillion plan. He stayed very much on message. Um, Luckily, he has really wrapped together all of the issues that are of most importance in this country, healthcare, economy, racial inequality, and climate, and made it into one package. And he's been able to speak very forcefully on climate. And certainly, I would love sort of 10 more talking points for him to have at his fingertips. But all in all, his messaging is very strong and consistent. And I think most people in the country, when they hear it, don't disagree with him. Uh, So Daniel Cohen from Rice University tweeted out a morning consult political poll showing that a majority of U.S. voters actually support what Biden proposed, which was transitioning subsidies away from the fossil fuel industry. It's not controversial at all. But, you know, the press makes things controversial. As expected, the Trump campaign seized on this moment, cut campaign ads. This seems to be what they think is their strongest messaging in the final days of the campaign. So that's kind of interesting on its own. Um, But, the you know, the oil and gas industry kind of shrugged, shrugged its shoulders, saying, we know that this is what the Biden campaign wants to do. Still, it became a moment of controversy. Jigger, what did you make of it? I was just so elated, right, by the moment, right? You think about what led to this moment, right? It started with um, Greta Thunberg, right, coming to the United States and all the fanfare and the Sunrise Movement and all the kids for Friday of the Future. And that led to Jay Inslee saying, I'm going to run my entire campaign on you know, climate change, it forced all of the presidential candidates to embrace some form of the Green New Deal. And, you know, we led to this moment where on the presidential stage, we had a dedicated question to climate change, right? I mean, in most cases, they were sort of like optional questions, audience questions. This is a dedicated question. And a dedicated answer, not a wishy-washy answer, but a real answer. I mean, it is obvious to anyone who reads Biden's plan that you can't get to net zero by 2050 without the oil industry going into some decline and getting replaced. But the fact that he pointed it out on national television, that is a moment for us to relish. Yeah, I totally agree. Then there were two things in the oil and gas industry's response, um, Stephen, that you had mentioned that kind of stood out for me. One is that they said they didn't like it, but they weren't alarmed by what he said. They were more concerned about the pace of the transition, which to me says, number one, they know they have to transition and they just want to be able to have some time to do it. And number two, they think Biden's going to win. Yeah, I think this goes back to what really... Um, matters and how the numbers work out. I think that in general, we continue to conflate um, people who work in fracking, right, which is about 12,000 people or something in the state of Pennsylvania, and then maybe another 12,000 people that are indirect jobs to fracking. That's a small number of people. So ultimately, it really goes to the mindset of the sort of swing voter or uh, of the base, right, that you're trying to bring out to vote. And in you know 2016, you actually had a large percentage of people who said they were undecided or weren't quite sure who they were going to vote for or if they were going to vote, 
right, by election day. Today, you don't have that. Pretty much, I mean, I think 79 million votes are already in the can because people have actually mailed in their ballots. And the rest of people have basically said, I kind of know who I'm going to vote for. And the polling numbers have been amazingly stable for the last eight or nine months, right? So my sense is, is that part of this is saying that that the actual cultural phenomenon that we experienced with the coal mining comments from Hillary Clinton back in 2016 are not resonating culturally. Like culturally, people sort of see what we're doing in the clean energy space as positive economic growth, right? This is part of the future, um, as opposed to where we were in 2016, where people were still quite not sure whether this was sacrifice. Yes, Biden has positioned this as very positive and a great opportunity. And we need to keep in mind also the people in Pennsylvania, certainly there are the jobs that, that Jigger mentioned, and there's the tax base, but honestly, a lot of people have not benefited from fracking because of the environmental damage it's caused. Okay, so then heading into the final days of the race, this has been the most expensive race in history, a $15 billion race. How did the clean energy industry stack up in terms of fundraising for the Biden administration? Jigger? Well, I mean, I'm quite proud of what we've accomplished at Clean Energy for Biden. We had over 10,000 volunteers, um, which is, I think, the largest uh, affiliate group of the Biden campaign. And so these are people who 16 times a week were actually doing like phone banking and all that stuff. And then they've raised about $3 million. So it's not a lot of money. I mean, I think it's fantastic. But compared to, let's say, Kathleen Welch, who, you know, raised $100 million from uh, League of Conservation Voters and, you know, other sort of high net worth donors. But I think it's a lot of energy. And I think part of what we were trying to do, and I think we've successfully done, is to adjudicate climate on the campaign trail, right? Remember, in 2008, McCain and Obama largely agreed. And you don't run a campaign on things that you agree on, right? Like you actually are trying to draw sharp contrast, which Biden and Trump have done, right? And so now if Biden wins, he has the mandate to say that this was adjudicated during the campaign, right? That we actually did not hide from our ambition here. In fact, we put it on display. We said two trillion over four years. We had ten thousand plus volunteers from Clean Energy providing. You have all these people, three point six million people who work in the clean energy movement, you know, writ large, right, from energy efficiency to electric vehicles. And and it is it is totally normal and possible now to pass a big stimulus bill right? Because we talked about it. We talked about it on the campaign trail, right? And so that's why I'm so proud of the clean energy industry is not because of what we got him to say or what we got him to do or whatever else. It's because we were able to make sure that every single week there was a demonstration of why this is important and keep this in the news, keep it in the news cycle. And, you know, the fact that people picked up on it, look, they could have also ignored it, but they didn't. Um, and I think that's awesome, right? And because they didn't ignore it, the polls moved. You know, like people are like, well, you know, that we need to see the poll numbers positive for clean energy before we talk about it. That's not how it works, right? The fact that Biden has embraced it fully has moved Democrat support for this transition away from fossil fuels by about 12 or 14 points. Yeah, and I would just say everything that Jigger says, I'm completely on board with. But I also think in addition to raising the money and getting people interested, Clean Energy for Biden was phenomenal about energizing people of all stripes. 
they not only got people to do get out the vote and 150 phone banks or something, but they also really looked at, they, they put on events that you could attend for very little money, depending on your age group and where you were in the industry. And they had series of really interesting conversations with people so that it was like a ser- series of webinars that were fascinating. I, I did a few of them. I had to stop when my kid went to the hospital, but I know Jigger's done a bunch too. Um, and they've allowed so many different types of people to participate based on the topic that they're interested in, based on their age, uh, based on their ability to contribute. Um, in Texas, uh, my husband was working a lot with the Texas committee. They're, they were talking about a path for job development in clean energy in a state that's very oil and gas heavy. And especially for young professionals, this was really important. And I think, so connecting the dots of the clean energy community to climate, to people on the ground voting was really critical a part of clean energy for Biden. So we're recording this on Thursday morning. There's an event happening tonight. Our listeners won't hear about this before the event happens. But there's a bunch of high profile people as part of the Clean Energy for Biden campaign. What's happening and what does it show about the strength of that particular slice of the movement? Yeah, I think what it shows really is that in the waning days of the campaign, right, you've got four climate governors, right? You've got Speaker Pelosi, you've got John Favreau, you've got like, you know, Veep, uh, you know, Julia Louise Dreyfus, right? They could do lots of other events. But the fact that they're doing this one means that it actually matters to the campaign. It actually matters to thank all the people who've been busting their hump for six months uh, to figure this out, right? And I think that, again, it's another signal of how important this is, because if people are going to spend their time here, versus 17 other places they could be spending their time, right? I think that really matters. And I think the other thing I would say is that the thing that Clean Energy for Biden movement really did, which I thought was impressive, is it played the inside-outside game with the Sunrise movement really well. This goes to what Catherine was saying. The Sunrise movement was really trying to energize young people, and climate was one of the main uh, attractions of that movement. But because of the coronavirus and because of the recession that we're in, a lot of folks who graduated from college didn't have jobs. They graduated in May. And a lot of folks poured their heart and soul into figuring out how to get this movement to occur. Because as we talked about with Rewiring America and other things, this is how you get 25 million people back to work, right? And so a lot of folks realized that like, yes, the climate is like not doing well and it needs to do better. But also like, I need a job. And like, which candidate is actually saying that they're going to proactively help me figure out a way to kill two birds with one stone, right? And so you actually have more young voting um, than was expected coming out a lot of the, the, the pundits and the analysis. And I think that's a reflection of why this event is happening tonight is that the campaign is realizing that that climate is what really energized a lot of the young people who promised to vote in many elections of the past, but actually delivered this time around. So I guess we'll end with a little punditry here. If Biden wins, what do we think his first energy climate priorities will be based on what he's talking about right now on the campaign trail? Are we going to see specific sliced up policy priorities or will he try something ambitious? Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, he said the first thing he's going to do is get us back into the Paris Accord. So I think that's the first thing he's going to do is send a letter to say, 
we're back in. But we know uh, that's not really ambitious at this stage. Well, but it's the first thing he said he was going to do. Right. The next thing, I think the big thing is there is going to be some kind of a big clean energy infrastructure package. And, and over after the election, uh, Congress will start preparing for that and get it all teed up. So in the first, you know, the first month or two, they'll be able to get something like that done. Jager, what do you think? So I think that it is important for everyone to really stay focused um, <laughs> first on the election. And then after the election is over, I think the next course of business is that personnel is policy. And so we lost the battle on personnel in 2008. We won't lose the battle this time around. I think that like we're not going to have, you know, lightweights in on our on our side right and so i think when it comes to people of color when it comes to figuring out how to put prominent women in positions when it comes to making sure that we are not an all of the above country anymore but we are actually a country that is marching its way towards net zero by 2050 it matters who gets chosen into those positions. So the next stage for clean energy for Biden is going to be to lobby its heart out around who gets those positions. And it really does matter because um, I really do think there's a lot of people out there who the oil industry want in there to say, hey, let's make this a slow and steady wins the race kind of conversion. And there's a lot of other people who are saying, this is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime, and China's eating our lunch. And if we want it, then we got to move faster. We got to have more electric vehicles manufactured in this country. We've got to have more LED lighting retrofits, more weatherization, et cetera. And those are two different camps. And they kind of sound like the same camp sometimes because they both want the same 2050 end goal. But the shape of the curve matters, and the people that he selects are have different points of view on the shape of the curve. Well, the movement and the business has evolved so much since 2008 or 2012. There is a freaking stacked lineup of people who will do an amazing job inside a potential Biden administration. So I think the personnel issue is going to be fascinating to watch. The second piece of this is that, sadly, the most radical thing that the Biden administration can do from day one is to elevate scientists once again to get reports about renewable energy and grid management back on the table that the Trump administration has suppressed. Catherine, you tweeted this out the other day. Peter Fairley wrote yet another investigative piece showing that the Department of Energy is suppressing very basic economic and grid integration reports related to renewable energy. I mean, they are just flat out pushing out research, pushing down scientists. We've seen this in the EPA. We've seen this in the DOE. They could not be more explicit about what they're doing. And one of the most radical things that the Biden administration could do is just elevate that work once again. It's a bit sad, but uh, that's the first thing that I presume that this administration will do. Well, the administration has a lot of work if they come in. Um, It's a lot easier to break a plate than it is to glue it back together. And the Trump administration has spent four years breaking all the plates in the cabinet. Yeah. I mean, it's unfathomable to think about what will happen to these agencies under another four years of the Trump administration. I, I literally just cannot wrap my brain around it. The one thing I would say, though, is the one thing I think that we've learned is that you can't break plates at the state level right? They can't break all the plates at all 50 states. And so I think one thing that our industry has done really well and has done for 
decades, but really refocused on it the last four years is making sure we pass 100% clean energy standards, you know, low carbon fuel standard credit programs, et cetera, across the country. And, and that now sets up the Biden administration as well as Speaker Pelosi to just rain down money. Right. And so like that, we don't actually need a national price on carbon. We don't need a lot of these policies to move it forward. What we need is to fully fund all of the initiatives that we've already set up at the state level. Governors have already said we are going to do this. And now there just needs to be federal matching dollars that go in to getting these priorities completed. Right. And I think that is a lot easier to do than um, actually passing a Waxman-Markey bill. Well, coming up, we're going to weigh in on some local races. First, a quick word about SunGrow. SunGrow is a supporter of this show. Thanks to them. They, of course, make inverters for solar and storage technology, as well as everything to operate these components efficiently and within your budget. SunGrow products integrate seamlessly into existing grids, and they're also really easy to set up. You can complete the setup via SunGrow's website or the app. And uh, they are fully compatible with newer bifacial solar modules as well, resulting in higher energy yield and more income for your project. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demands of the energy storage market. They are currently working on siting a storage facility, a battery manufacturing facility here in the U.S. And once operational, it's going to be million square feet and we'll have 12 gigawatt hours of scalable capacity. It's also going to have a cogeneration plant there that will provide power back to the grid when demand is low. They've got a two gigawatt hour Chinese factory currently shipping product to customers. And you can get your hands on some of those batteries at corepower.com. All right. So what else are we keeping our eyes on? Congressional seats, local uh, legislative races, local regulatory races. Jigger, you are on the board of Climate Hawks Vote. So you are often paying attention to many of these races. What is catching your attention? Yeah, no, I appreciate, um, you know, the complexity out there. It's really hard to stay on track. Everyone's focused on the presidential elections. But, you know, there's uh, state houses and state senates, right? Those are the ones who pass these 100% clean energy bills. There's uh, boards of uh, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. So that's like one of the races I'm following is uh, Fatima uh, Malik, who is running for one of the Sacramento Municipal Utility District board seats where, you know, one of the most pro-gas, anti, you know, decarbonization folks has been sitting. And Remember, SMUD, you know, announced a decarbonization strategy, a pretty aggressive one, like five years ago. And they're slow at implementing because their board has been slowing them down, right? And so, you know, there's also, for instance, Nebraska has a lot of uh, public power districts, and they are subsidizing a lot of coal plants in Nebraska. And so getting people on the boards uh, is how you get Joe Daniels' work to actually get implemented. Um, you know, in Texas, you've got, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people that are running on a green agenda to take back the House. So one of the things that I am really focused on is intentionality, right? I think that for a long time, there's been a lot of people who basically say, just, just vote for Democrats and we're fine. And I don't think that's enough, right? You need people who actually are going to make climate their number one issue. One of the things that we learned in 2018 when we did a lot of work was we backed Sean Kasten, our good friend um, 
from uh, Illinois. And, you know, Sean has played a pivotal role in Kathy Castor's uh, climate report because he's a clean energy entrepreneur. He knows how private capital flows work. He knows exactly how entrepreneurs work. And so he has become invaluable to other members of Congress around, hey, would this idea actually work? Like, how does this work? How does that work? Right. And I think, you know, just making sure that we actually have climate champions that get into these places is really important. And one other race that I would highlight is uh, Washington's 10th congressional district, uh, Beth uh, Doglio, who currently represents the 22nd, but because of redistricting is now the 10th. is running against this awesome person, but this person who doesn't really care that much about climate. And Beth really cares about climate. And so it's like two women running against you. This is a Democratic primary. And the way that Washington State works is like the two top vote getters run against each other in the in the finals. And so you you think, well, it doesn't really matter which woman we vote for. But Beth actually like is a climate champion, and the other woman is not a climate champion. So it's one of those things where I think that just understanding how important it is to be a climate champion and how important some of these races are to influencing utility policy, influencing you know how federal money gets spent, et cetera, is just a level of detail that not a lot of folks focus on. Catherine, what are you focusing on? Oh, you know what it is. It's utility regulation. <laughs> it's right. Mm-hmm. There are 10 states with regulatory races. And remember, these are the folks that oversee the transition to renewable energy. They oversee where transmission lines are built and what rates consumers have to pay and really, you know, put in place the rules of engagement and play for all of this transition. The legislature might make some legislation or the executive branch might have an executive order, but these are the folks that really make it happen and put it into place. And they can do that for good and for not so good. So there are about 10 races out there. One that I was watching is in Louisiana, um, Louisiana Public Service Commission. Um, Eric Scarmetta is anti-renewables. He works very hard within the organization of MISO states, which is all the states that that participate in the MISO market. Um, And he has huge influence over them. And so he's been against long range planning principles. So his impact goes beyond just Louisiana to all of those MISO states. And he is running against another Republican. And, you know, this is a case where in Mississippi, we have two really good regulators, both of whom are Republicans. Um, And it's Kevin Pearson, who's a Republican running against him. They'll have a runoff very likely because, again, it's sort of one of those where the the, the highest two vote getters then have to run off against each other. Um, but that's someone that we're watching because the southern states I've been engaging a lot in, and it's pretty interesting to watch how they're viewing the transition. And often it is, you're not going to get a Democrat, you get a really good Republican that can help move the needle. I asked our listeners what they're paying attention to, and many of them pointed to the Texas Railroad Commission election, pitting Democrat Krista Castaneda against uh, Republican Jim Wright. Jim Wright won against a Republican incumbent in a recent primary. And Democrats don't often win in Texas. The Texas Railroad Commission is the regulator for the state's oil and gas industry. And all of a sudden, this race has changed dramatically because Castaneda is doing quite well in the polls. And Michael Bloomberg dumped $2.6 million into her campaign. She's also gotten the support of the Sierra Club. She is a lawyer who has worked with oil and gas companies. But she is also saying that she wants to 
regulate methane capture in a state that has not done much to encourage oil and gas companies to capture their methane emissions. And I think she's seen as someone who will both work with the oil and gas industry, but also promote strong regulations that will cap some of the worst global warming pollution. So uh, she's also, you know, talked openly about climate change. And her opponent, Jim Wright, has said that he doesn't think we have the facts on what's causing climate change. So squarely in the denial camp. Anyway, a fascinating race. That's that's such a what? That's such a 2016 comment. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, even even Donald Trump didn't say that, like on stage of the debate. Like he just said that he'd like to plant a billion or trillion right, trees instead. Right. <laughs> well, anyway, fascinating that this race has gotten so much attention and so many millions of dollars. It just goes to show you, per Catherine's comment, how important some of these regulatory races are. And if Castaneda wins, it could reshape um, upstream oil and gas regulation in a state like Texas that is gradually shifting blue. Okay, so let's go another round. What else are you paying attention to, Jigger? So I am really interested in the South Carolina Senate race. For those of you who remember... Our good friend, Fred Krupp, was raising money for Lindsey Graham forever and ever. And Lindsey Graham was supposed to pass the climate bill in the Senate in 2008 or 2009, 2010, right? And what a flake he's turned out to be. I think it is super important for all of us to figure out how to put the nail in the coffin on Lindsey Graham. Like, I think Jamie Harrison's fantastic. But the other thing is that I think South Carolina is proving to be a massively pro-renewable energy and clean energy state. And I just think that it's super important that we continue to work on some of these senators who the environmental movement for years has said, you know, was going to be our important 60th vote or whatever other crap they were peddling at the time. And like recognize that like actions matter. You either delivered for us or you didn't. And if you didn't deliver for us, then you're out. Catherine, what else? Yeah, so a little closer to home for me in the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, Virginia's 5th District, which is a very large, long piece, long district that goes from Fauquier County all the way down through Charlottesville and then down to Bedford County and then Danville at the south part of, you know, right on the border of North Carolina. It doesn't go right through Lynchburg, that my hometown, it goes around it, but it is definitely adjacent to it. And the person who is running on the Democratic side is Dr. Cameron Webb. Um, he is a very well-known physician. He uh, teaches and is director of health policy at UVA School of Medicine in Charlottesville. He and his wife are both physicians. He is a black man. He also has worked in um, racial just on racial justice issues. So he deals with um, issues of equity as well. And I just think um, because he combines health and equity, he will also be a really big champion for climate action if he can get into, um, you know, kind of try to win this race that is definitely leans Republican. But if he can do this, he would be a really strong voice in the House of Representatives. So there are a lot of local ballot initiatives around the country that deal with energy issues. One that caught my eye is in Columbus, Ohio. This was suggested by Rob Raines, who's an energy expert and an Ohioan and 
a friend, who pointed out ballot issue one in Columbus, Ohio, that would allow the city to develop the state's largest community aggregation program and allow the city's residents to uh, procure way more renewable energy. This is a bit of an ironic push because of the bill that was passed last year, House Bill 6, that would provide a $1.5 billion bailout to First Energy and OVEX coal and nuclear power plants and strip the state's energy efficiency and renewable energy goals. So we'll see if this wins out in Columbus, Ohio. It would be a strong win for local renewable energy policy in a state that has really just walked backward on this issue. Have you looked at ballot initiative five in Louisiana? Is that the one that allows oil and gas companies not to pay property taxes or? or Yeah. uh, So Cameron LNG was given the the most valuable piece of land in all of Louisiana. It's worth $12 billion in the coast. They pay $38,000 worth of taxes per year. They had a 10-year property tax exemption, basically, and they want to extend it forever. So they've already got it for 10 years. They owe $220 million a year of property taxes once their 10-year tax exemption rolls out, and they want to extend it forever. At the same time, our good friends in Louisiana are getting hit by a Category 2 hurricane, right, which has been, unfortunately, not so infrequent since Katrina. And my, you know, our hearts go out to them, obviously. I mean, there's thousands without power right now, and it's just, it is the most ridiculous, um, you know, just clearest example of the fight that we're having. The oil and gas industry wants more subsidies and more handouts at a time when this state has actually just been pummeled by, you know, greater storm intensity due to climate change. We've had more named storms this year than like in the last like 60 years. It's, it's, It's unbearable. Yep, they could use the property tax funding. I've been watching um, some ballot initiatives, too, on public transit as climate policy. So there are $1.4 billion worth of transportation ballot measures, over half of which are about public transit. They're in the Bay Area, Atlanta, Austin, and Portland. And this is really um, using transit as a tool not only to clean the air, but also uh, to achieve better equality um, and allow people to move around um, much easier and safer. So I've been watching those, too. Let's go to a completely different subject to finish up the show, the Aliso Canyon disaster five years later. So five years ago, thousands of Los Angeles residents had to flee their homes for weeks, some for months, when a natural gas well in the adjacent hills blew its casing. Schools were shut down. The invisible torrent of gas was discovered by a pilot who said it was by far the worst he'd ever found. The well was located in a geologic basin where Southern California Gas Company stores gas, allowing it to import from Texas and the Rocky Mountains when prices are low and store it until there's demand. It's a a business model that electricity providers can only dream of. The four-month event was a health hazard and a climate disaster. Health hazard because the gushing gas carried remnants of the crude oil that originally filled the formation. Climate disaster because 107,000 tons of methane were added to the atmosphere. And methane is more potent than CO2 in trapping gas, in trapping heat. It also created 
a new policy push to encourage distributed resources as an alternative to gas. And it put momentum behind the movement to rip gas infrastructure out of buildings and electrify everything. But how much momentum and how much change did we see as a result? Jigger, what do you think the biggest change was in the gas industry itself after Aliso Canyon? Yeah, the gas industry in 2015, when this occurred, was still riding high, right? That natural gas was the king. It was the reason we were decarbonizing so quickly. And Southern California Edison, right? Not Southern California Gas, but Southern California Edison had put all of its chips on natural gas as its way of showing its citizens in the LA basin that it was decarbonizing, right? And so so people were really, um, you know, sort of all in on gas. And I think what a difference five years makes because you're in a situation now where, you know, I think battery storage for sure um, got a huge boost after Aliso Canyon. A lot of the big battery storage projects were finally permitted and signed after that leak. But more importantly, I think you've seen this huge um, movement against natural gas in the state of California, where, you know, millions of people now live in cities that have banned new natural gas connections, right? And has said that all new uh, buildings have to be under the Electrify Everything moniker. And, um, and so I think that there's just been an opening by which activists were able to really go after the gas industry. And I think they went through that opening. Catherine, what do you think about that opening? Yeah, I think for the solution side of the opening, and I completely agree with Jigger, 10 years ago, AB 2514 was signed into law, and that mandated 1.3 gigawatts of storage to be installed by the big three utilities in California by 2020. And what that did was that created an institutional infrastructure for energy storage. It allowed a lot of deployments to go forward. It scaled. It drove down the prices. So when Aliso Canyon happened, this was a moment when the advocates of clean energy could finally make the case for not only the unreliability of natural gas, but also there is a solution. We can build it quickly. We can build it cost effectively. And I think that was what was huge about this and about the solutions, because now other states can look to that sort of solution to see the cost worked, the timing worked, it's possible and feasible. And it was feasible because they did that mandate and really laid the groundwork for it. But now other states can leapfrog. So Senator Gillibrand from New York is looking at why don't we um, introduce a bill that would replace all dirty natural gas peaker plants with energy storage. And we now know that is possible. What about methane regulations? They've been the subject of a powerful political tug of war. How has that shaken out in the wake of Aliso Canyon? That's been an interesting battle. My business partner, Isaac Brown, runs the Center for Methane Emission Solutions and has been working on this issue for a long time. So I got a lot of information from him. And his thought on methane and the politics around that is that it's not a partisan issue at all. The Trump administration rolled back methane regulation simply as a talking point and to say, we're going to do the opposite of what Obama did. But that created a lot of problem for the industry. The industry is not aligned with not having methane regulation. First of all, um, it makes sense. They make more money. They produce more if they don't have methane leaks. Um, it creates a huge amount 
of uncertainty because then you have to go state by state and all the states are different and they have different timelines and and it costs so much money. So when you have companies like Shell and BP and Halliburton coming out and saying, please don't do this, it shows you that the industry is not driving that regulatory discussion. It is politics and talking points. And I don't know if you all remember, but back when Trump was first elected, you know, API gave a ton of money to the Trump campaign and to GOP senators. And they tried to roll back those rules through um, a CRA on the floor of the Senate, which would just be a vote to get rid of the regulation. And John McCain came out and voted against it and tipped the balance the other direction. Um, That was API's number one goal was to get rid of those regulations. But industry itself has moved forward a lot. And I think it is not a partisan issue at this point. So the political positioning right now for methane leak reduction is very different than it was four years ago. But I do think that the methane leak problem is a big one, right? And it's one that I think For whatever reason, we have not been able to get to the bottom of the truth on the numbers and the data, right? So on one side, you have, um, you know, the industry saying that we have every incentive to control leaks and all this other stuff. And on the other side, you have a bunch of satellite data that shows that leaks are springing up all over the place throughout the United States. And it's one of those things where if those leaks are pronounced and large, well, then natural gas is worse than coal, right? And this is the challenge, is that like, we all sort of assume that natural gas done correctly is better than coal. But it's not clear that natural gas is being done correctly. It's one of those things where like, every time we look right after in the wake of Aliso Canyon, which was the worst natural gas leak, right, this country's ever had, um, you know, there are a whole bunch of sensors that were, you know, were already in development and already produced, but never really deployed at scale that were deployed, Right. And we deployed all these sensors and we started looking at all these places like the premium bases, as we just talked about with the Texas Railroad Commission um, election. And people are like, wow, this really is a lot worse, you know, and, and we haven't tied the two together. It is entirely possible in my mind that the ranges that we are provided under the Obama administration for methane leakage is at the top end of the range. And if it's at the top end of the range, which is sort of that 4%, 5% range, then Natural gas is no better and probably worse than coal. And I I don't think we've had a reckoning in this country about that. Yeah, and I would just say, um, Jigger, to that point, the visual images of the plume at Aliso Canyon were really alarming and shocking and, and caused action. And that same thing happened in New Mexico with that Permian plume. And this is about technology. This is about being able to visualize where all these leaks are. It used to be, and it still is in a lot of places, where there's a guy with something called a sniffer that just walks the line to figure out where the leaks are. And this little tool is supposed to kind of sniff out where the natural gas is. And then you have to go and try to figure out where to leak it. Well, drone technology, satellite technology has really been a game changer. So you can see much more precisely. And in a day, you can do an entire you know, gas line. Um, and then you can really spot and fix the leaks. And it seems to me that no matter what, we got to get the leaks fixed. And we now have much better technology to do so. And I think that the industry is very motivated to make sure that they use that. Um, because it's, it's certainly not because it saves the environment necessarily, but because it saves them a lot of money and allows them produ- to produce more. 
Right. I mean, the methane issue, the methane leakage issue is so crucial, as you just both pointed it out. And to put a finer point on this jigger, in 2012, Robert Holworth of Cornell came out with this study showing that methane emissions likely made natural gas worse for climate change than coal. It got attacked by the natural gas industry. But then we saw more studies come out. Uh, and one from EDF, a five-year study, using some of these more sophisticated measurement techniques that Catherine mentioned, shows that the tons of methane leaking from oil and gas operations was way beyond what the EPA was estimating, 60% higher. And so that's, you know, $2 billion worth of gas. It's enough to fuel 10 million homes a year. And it puts a lot more global warming pollution into the atmosphere. So this is a huge issue. And I think it only became more important after Aliso Canyon when there was a lot more scrutiny on the gas industry. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think that the 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 reason why this stuff matters is because I think in this fight that we're in with the, you know, sort of natural gas industry, there isn't actually a clear point of view from the industry and the movement. So the American Gas Association has no idea what it's fighting for. So when you talk to them, are they pro RNG? Yeah, of course. Are they pro hydrogen? Yeah. But like, are they actually pro electrify everything? Do they understand what their role is in the conversion to a decarbonized uh, environment? And do their shareholders, more importantly, know? The answer is no. They have no idea what they're fighting for. Are they doing renewable portfolio standard type legislation? Are they like, what is it that they're pushing, right? And and they're completely lost. But this, the on the other side, the you know enviros are completely lost. You know, they're basically saying electrify everything, electrify everything, electrify everything. But then they have no concept of what electrify everything means. And when you actually read the environmentalists who are actually trying to electrify their own homes on Twitter, they're like, this is a lot harder than we thought it would be. The local guy didn't actually know how to install the heat pump. The local guy didn't know how to do this thing. It turned out to be three times more expensive than I thought. And so we're in this situation where... The environmentalists are basically saying, electrify everything, and that is our only position, and we are not going to deviate from that. The natural gas industry is saying, we have no idea what we're fighting for because we actually are still taking votes and polling our members and figuring out where our board members sit, et cetera. But we'll say some nice things about renewable natural gas and hydrogen in the meantime. And and the state like governors and and you know policymakers are saying, Guys, like, we, we can't do this for you. Like, we take testimony. You guys have to, like, submit testimony. You have to actually come up with smart policy. And then we have to actually figure out what the other half of this bridge looks like. Right now, this is a bridge to nowhere. We need to actually build the second half of the bridge, right? And, and so I think that this is super important on the substance. And it's not just politics. Like, I think the substance is actually missing here. This is something that the gas industry has not reckoned with. So we have seen gas utilities, SoCal Gas too, say, we want to invest more in renewable natural gas. We want to use our existing pipeline infrastructure. We think potentially we'll use hydrogen. But, you know, the gas companies don't just control pipeline infrastructure. They have a huge influence on the kind of equipment that contractors sell, the kind of equipment that manufacturers make. I mean, there's a huge downstream impact that you pointed out. And in order to phase gas out and electrify everything, the gas industry is really going to have to put its weight behind making sure that consumers have more choices. And the gas industry is not prepared to do that. So 
I think we have seen a shift in terms of what they see being funneled through their pipeline infrastructure long term, but they very few companies that operate gas infrastructure and are selling gas to end consumers really want to see a big push to electrify. I totally agree, Stephen. That 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 is exactly the right way to summarize it. You agree with me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's always a first. <laughs> Let's go to our free electrons. Uh, Catherine, what do you got? Yeah, so there are two reports that are pretty closely linked. One is the IEA, the International Energy Agency, is releasing a report that basically says governments are not investing enough in grid infrastructure. And this is both in physical infrastructure and also in digital technology and security infrastructure to keep up with the speed of the energy transition. They're basically saying, you need to step up here, guys, because uh, clean energy is going forward apace and the grid is not going to be able to accommodate all these new technologies unless you invest in that. So that is an interesting report that's just coming out and kind of on the other side of that, Americans for Clean Energy Grid, which is a U.S.-based organization, also released a report about expanding transmission in the eastern U.S. to say that it could create as many as 6 million net new jobs, lowering the cost of the grid by $100 billion overall, which would be about $300 per household per year, and reducing carbon emissions 65% by 2035, 95% by 2050. And it would mean about 80% of solar and wind on the grid. So that, that was interesting. And I think there is going to continue to be focus on the transmission side, transmission technologies, um, and trying to move move power around to accommodate all the clean energy resources we're deploying. Yeah, well, Joe Biden's been giving transmission a shout out at campaign events. So yeah, no, he's super educated on transmission. And I think it's I, I think people are a lot smarter this time around around how to get transmission done using, you know, rail right of ways, using um, old oil and gas pipeline right of ways, using the highway. So I think I think we're going to get it done this time around. Yeah. And there's so many new technologies that are you're able to push more through the wires with these new technologies, whether it's you know, dynamic line rating, et cetera. Yeah, no, totally agree. Jigger, what's your free electron? All right. I've got two, but one major and one minor. Well, they're actually both major. Let's do it that way. Um, China this week actually announced their new policy for uh, vehicles. And they're saying that 50% of all their vehicles have to be new technology by 2035. I think that's going to be sooner, but that's electric, plug-in hybrids, or uh, fuel cells. I think it matters, even though it's not 100%, because China actually does what it says, whereas a lot of other people create a, like aspirational goals. Um, and China is the world's largest auto market. So if China says that 50% of cars have to be advanced technologies by 2035, mostly electric, it's probably going to do it. And so I think that's going to create unprecedented demand for gigafactories and all the other things. And you're going to see a huge uh, space race, I think, around battery technologies as we move to 2035, because I think people are realizing the limitations of lithium ion. And there's a lot of new technologies coming forward that could be valuable there. The other one I have is there is a great new initiative by Amy Barnes called Join Power Women. Um, and it is really about collecting the names of women who are in the energy sector um, and featuring them. Because not unlike some of the off-color comments that were made a couple weeks ago about 
African-American candidates. There are a lot of people who say there are not enough qualified women, and that's why there's not enough women on boards, women in the C-suite, et cetera. And so Join Power Women is doing a great job of collecting these names and making sure that corporations that are trying to do the right thing around people of color and around women in energy do a good job of making sure that they're highlighting those names and making sure that folks are not using the excuse that they don't have any qualified women in their network. Love it. Oh, yeah, that's great. In the words of Mitt Romney, there are binders full of women. (laughs) You just have to look. Totally. Okay, well, I came up short. So 10 minutes before we jumped on the recording, I put out the call on Twitter and our listeners responded very quickly. I asked for non-election related free electrons and I'm just gonna zip through some of these uh, thanks to the people who listened to this show. So Dan Pickle says they discovered the presence of water on the moon a few days ago. I did read about that. Yeah. Um, Simon Mahan says there's 100 gigawatts of clean energy in queues in the South. MC Hammond says that there were some major uh, awards from the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program for uh, new nuclear plants, uh, $80 million cost share for Natrium and Excel for demonstration through 2027. So that's a big deal for the advanced nuclear industry. Amy Giron gives a shout out to World Central Kitchen, which was founded by Chef Jose Andres, uh, trying to bring chefs of the world together to feed people who are in need. Certainly way more important uh, during the economic calamity caused by this pandemic. By the way, they have done a ton. Uh, It is amazing how many people they've fed over the last eight months. It's just breathtaking to watch. Tim Woodcock points out that Rob Gramlich has a new paper on interconnecting offshore wind projects. Dan Jacobson points out David Roberts' recent piece on geothermal in Vox, which was a fantastic piece on the state of geothermal. Uh, Joe Daniel, who we name drop on this show all the time, says that mathematically we could end energy poverty by diverting fossil fuel subsidies to low-income households. Yes, in actuality, it's a lot more complicated, but he has a piece of analysis out about that. John Semelhack points out that uh, in Virginia, they've taken uh, steps to permit offshore wind turbines and it looks like they're getting close to a major offshore wind development there off the coast of Virginia as the regulatory process unfolds. First Solar's earnings were really good this week. That's pointed out by Dr. Billionaire. Dr. Billionaire also says between 1941 and 1956, the Brooklyn Dodgers lost six of seven World Series. The Dodgers are, of course, the LA Dodgers are, of course, this year's World Series champions. And Wave of the Future says... And that's that's uh, and that's Sammy Roth's team, right? From our, our good friend from the LA Times. That's right. Sammy Roth is, uh, I follow him for his tweets about energy, but I stay for the baseball tweets. <laughs> <laughs> and then Wave of the Future says, get your flu shot. Remind everyone to get their flu shot. And then there's one more here. Clyde McQueen points out a tweet from Lori Mirlavirta. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name. I apologize. But Lori points out an enormous unprecedented shift on energy and CO2 across Asia. Japan has a new net zero by 2050 target. The Philippines, a moratorium on new coal plant permits. Korea, net zero by 2050. Vietnam and Bangladesh considering no new coal projects. And that's on top of China's net zero pledge in September. Stephen, you may have come in late, but you came in hot. That was like 12 free electrons wrapped into one. So I don't ever want to hear about having two again. (laughs) 
Exactly, exactly. I mean, if anyone questioned whether we were shovel-ready in the clean energy industry, <laughs> we are shovel-ready. Oh, well, let's see if we're ready for the election. The anxiety is strong in me right now, I got to tell you. Um, so everyone take care out there. Um you know, we'll be back with you after the election. Who knows next Thursday, by the time we record, if we'll have results, but we'll do our best to parse through whatever information we have in front of us. And we'll also keep focused on any other big stories related to the energy transition. Jigger, take care of the next few days. Vote like your life depends on it. Because it does. Catherine, be well. Take good care of your son. I hope you ride through this, you know, strong. And um, we'll, we'll catch you on the other side of the election. Yeah, definitely. Vote early and often, guys. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine and Jigger are my co-hosts. I am the executive producer. Thanks for listening. If you want to show your support and help us grow, send out the word on social media or send a link to a friend or colleague. Give us a rating and review at Apple. And uh, we'll, you know, we'll be there wherever you get podcasts. So just be with us here next week. Find us on any platform and we will talk to you very soon. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Thanks for being here. <laughs>